Welcome to Science Stories. Welcome to Science Stories. Welcome everybody to another episode of Science Stories. Today I'm really proud to introduce someone that is from the same place where I am. It's a Uruguayan astronomer, Dr. Gonzalo Tancredi. He works currently at the Universidad of La República in Uruguay and he's also the president of the National Association of Researchers, Investiga UI. He was the first Latin America to become president of the Division of International Astronomical Union and his field of expertise are the small bodies of the solar system related to impact processes and consequences for life on Earth. How are you doing, Dr. Tancredi? Okay, thank you very much. Uh, I'm doing fine. I'm in Montevideo nowadays. Thank you so much. I know it's a little bit later there and it's a Friday afternoon. Thank you so much for, for being open to, to talk to me right now. Yeah, well, thank you for the invitation and it's a pleasure. I want to talk about first about the, the DART project. DART stands for Double Asteroid Redirection Test, and it was, it was a mission from NASA. The idea of the, of the mission is to see what was our ability to redirect an asteroid coming towards the Earth. You used this mission to study how the impact ejecta evolved into a tail, right? And, and, and I have a, a lot of questions. First, first of all, I have a really basic question. Is it a matter of scale that asteroids appear to move, whereas stars don't, at least from, from what we see from Earth? Well, uh, it's a matter of distance because uh, every object in the universe is moving, but depends on the observer. If the observer is close enough to the moving object, then you can see the displacement in the sky. But if you are far enough, like in the case of stars, is you have to take a lot of time in order to see the, those movements. In the case of asteroids, they are moving around the sun. They are moving in what we call allocentric orbits, like the Earth is moving around the sun. And since they are, those are objects not too far away, in astronomical distance, then you can see the movement of these objects. It may take some time in that in some cases it can take a few minutes, a few hours, or even a few days in order to see the movement. If the orbit, for example, it's in the outer part of the solar system in the what we call the transneptunian region. But if the object is close enough in what we call the near Earth after asteroids, that means asteroids that are coming close to the Earth, then you can see the movement in a matter of minutes or, or hours. Okay, thank you for clarifying that. Can you please tell us about the Dimorphos and Di Didymos? I don't know how to pronounce it properly. Asteroids. Didymos. Didymos, thanks. Uh, Didymos is one of these 
asteroids that are uh, coming close to the Earth, one of these NIAs, near-Earth asteroids. And in fact, what it happens that uh, after a few time, uh, a few observations of Didymos, it was observed that there was a, some kind of a dip in the brightness of Didymos, some kind of uh, plainness uh, of, of, of Didymos. And this is because Didymos has a satellite and the satellite is producing some kind of eclipses. So when it, the satellite comes in front of us, in between Didymos and the Earth, then the brightness of the system goes down a little bit. So uh, this satellite was named Dimorphos, and uh, this is what we call a binary system. Two objects that is in size, they are comparable, and it's not like the case of the Earth and the Moon, that the Earth is much bigger. In this case, those objects are in some way comparable, and um, this uh, Didymos, uh, it's orbiting around the Sun, and Dimorphos is orbiting around Didymos. And what was the objective of the DART mission? Well, uh, as you mentioned, the DART, it's a test mission. It's not, a, let's say, a scientific mission. It was like something like doing an experiment, but in, in instead of doing it in the in the ground in the in the lab we do it on, in the space and what was the test well the test was to impact an object and see what happened after the impact and in particular to see if we were if we are able to uh, change the orbit of the object if we are orbiting to deflect the object into a different trajectory and uh, since Dimorphos is uh, orbiting around Didymos, then the idea was to change the orbit of Dimorphos around Didymos, and in particular to change the period of Dimorphos around Didymos. The period of Dimorphos around Didymos is on the order of 12 hours, and the idea was to see what happened when a spacecraft, the DART mission, impact directly into Dimorphos and change its orbit. How big are these asteroids? Well, in the case of uh, Dimorphos, it's a 160-meter uh, 160 object. And in the case of Didymos, it's a little bit bigger, around a uh, little less than 800 meters okay. in diameter. Was there a significant impact? Or, or was there a significant yeah, change uh, in the trajectory after yes, the impact? Yeah, that, that what, uh, well, the impact occurs in... September 26 last year, so just a little more than a year from the impact time, and um, the period, the orbital period of the Morphos was changed from 12 hours to 11 hours 30 minutes, uh, or roughly that number. So the 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 period was reduced by 30 minutes. It corresponds to something like five percent. So it was a significant change, change, maybe a little bit more uh, or a little larger than what we expected. So this, to the common eye, may sound as not much of a change, just half an hour, right? But but this mission is considered successful, right? Yeah. Well, we are talking about a little less than 600 kilograms spacecraft. So compared to the uh, to the size and to the mass of this object is just a small uh, small object. It's like to impact with a bullet into a large object. 
and uh, the the issues that the impact was at a very high speed on the order of six kilometers per seconds. That means on the order of 20,000 kilometers per hour, that was the impact speed. And that makes uh, that the impact energy, and in particular what we call the impact momentum, the transfer of energy and transfer of momentum into uh, the morphor was large. In addition, due to the impact, there was a lot of ejected, a lot of material that was ejected from the surface of Dimorphos, and this this material even enhanced the consequence and the results of this impact. In particular, the final momentum transferred to, to Dimorphos was larger than if we only have, for example, an inelastic collision. These kind of collisions are ejecting a lot of material that is going into the opposite direction of impact. And that's where your study comes in. There's a study I read from you that you used this mission to, to study how impact ejecta evolve into a tail, which is something that it's, if you don't mind me saying, super smart because you, you discuss, you mentioned in the article that you never, you always see the asteroids when they have the tail formed. And now this was a really precious opportunity to see how the tail is formed. What did you learn from this experiment? Well, since many years ago, there has been a lot of discussion among the scientific community, the astronomical community, about a set of objects that uh, have uh, tails. Maybe people, I mean, usual people have heard about uh, comets. Comets are objects that produce a very long tail, and it can be seen in the sky, and in the past it has been a matter of debate about how these uh, tails were produced. The comets are objects who has uh, a mixture of ice, water ice, and dust. And when the comet comes close to the Earth, and close to the Sun, in particular, close to the Sun, the temperature rise and the ice become gas and with the, with this gas the dust that is embedded in this ice is released and then it produces the tails and the coma that we clearly observe in comets but in contrast asteroids are objects that are inert in the sense that they don't have much ice maybe they have a little bit ice but very few and it has mainly a rocky option. So the effects of the suns are not as important as in the case of comets, and they don't have tails. But in the few, well, less than 20 years ago, some asteroid has been observed to have some tails. That means they are releasing material, they are releasing dust. One of the explanations for this release of dust was a consequence of impacts. When uh, after its uh, impact, then it releases a lot of dust, and then this dust produces the tails. But as you mentioned, the cases of this asteroid that has been observed with tails, it has been long after the supposed impact. In the case of the DART experiments, in addition to the other 
results related to the uh, transfer of momentum and the importance of deviation of an asteroid. Another consequence was the production of this kind of tails, and we can observe it from the beginning, from the in, from the time of impact and onwards. So it was a possibility, and and we are still are discussing this to understand this kind of other population of objects that we call active asteroid that has tails in view of the results of the dark impact. What would be the solar radiation pressure that you talk about in your article? After the dust is released from, from an impact, if there is no other forces, it may fall back into the asteroid, either into the Morphos or Didymos. It could enter into orbit around this, or uh, it could be ejected, but at very low speed. But since we are talking about small particles of dust, maybe micron-sized particles, millimeter-sized particles, there are other forces in addition to the gravitational forces that could act on these small particles. One of these forces is what we call the solar radiation pressure. The solar radiation pressure, it can be easily understood if we think that the sun is releasing a lot of radiation and this radiation is transported with photons. The photons are the particles that are uh, associated with the, with the radiation, with the electromagnetic radiation. And these photons are impacting the small particles. The photons are much smaller than the particles, but since we have a lot of photons impacting this, the, the, these particles, then it's producing some kind of uh, what, what we can be mentioned as something like blowing the particles. It's, it's, not, it's not like a blowing, it's not like blowing, it's, it's just that these particles are being pushed away by the uh, radiation pressure of the sun. So that, that's the way that it can produce a tail because it's in the anti-sun direction and the opposite direction to the sun and it's being uh, blown by uh, the sun radiation pressure and mainly affected by small particles. As I said, millimeter or micrometer size particles. Particles larger, centimeter size, meter size are less affected and they could, for example, uh, be around the object for much longer time. Because in the end, it's a competition of forces, the gravitational force that it will attract the particle towards the asteroid, right? And the sun that is kind of pushing mm -hmm. away. Also, we have that all these objects are moving around the sun. Mm -hmm. So the sun also attracts them with the gravitational. But since they are in an orbit, they don't fall into the sun. But as you mentioned, the solar radiation pressure, it's a force in the other direction. It's a force moving the particle outwards in the other direction to the sun. Dr. Sancredi, I'm sure everybody has asked you this a million times, so I'm sorry for, for repeating this question, but this DART mission sounds so similar to this famous movie, right? Armageddon. Yeah. Uh, well, in fact, uh, <laughs> I could say that it's on, on the opposite way. I mean, Armageddon was inspired in the studies that we have done 
uh, I mean, the, the, this astronomical community, uh, community has done for many years about the different alternatives on how to deflect an asteroid that is coming towards the Earth. Uh, since the since the 80s and mainly the 90s, we have recognized the situation that the Earth is exposed to the impact of small bodies, and these impacts could produce a lot of problems, a lot of catastrophic situations on the surface of the Earth, in particular affecting life on Earth. This phenomenon has occurred in the past. So, recognizing this problem, the astronomical community, the scientific community in general, has devised different alternatives to deflect an asteroid. And one alternative is the one that has been tested with the DART mission. It's what we call the kinetic impactor just to knock the object with another with a spacecraft and then move it but there are there were another alternatives for example or there are another alternatives that can be think for example there is an alternative called uh solar uh, solar sail to use the well the solar radiation pressure and to have something like a big screen where the photons impacts and then the object is moved away from the, from the sun a gravitational tractor uh, well different kind of alternatives and even the nuclear alternative to try to defect an asteroid that's the one that it has been mentioned in in the movie Armageddon, Armageddon. so in the movie there's a Armageddon. scene in which there are two scientists discussing what was the best strategy and there was one guy that was saying let's hit it with a bomb and deflect it and everybody laughed at him and said, like, that's not going to work. We have to dig a hole and, and break the asteroid in two. And so both pieces going to go north and south from, from our planet. So we have to split it in two. You split it in half. The other guy was right then. Yeah, well, the, the alternative that it was put forward in the Armageddon movie, it's not realistic because it is very difficult to split an object like an asteroid in, in different parts and in particular it could make the problem worse because one possibility is that instead of being heated by one single object, it being heated, the Earth, by many small objects. So the, uh, the best alternative is to just to try to deflect the, uh, the mm -hmm. asteroid because the space is so big, I mean, the, the empty space is so big that uh, uh, just by deflecting a little bit, then you can make that the asteroid just not hit the Earth, but just pass by uh, close, but without any consequence. So that's the kind of uh, alternatives uh, the, for deflection that we have been studying. Uh, and that's the one that I mentioned before. So, yeah, it's real that Armageddon was not based on scientific results. Dr. Tancredi, let's do our, our first break. And when we come back, we talk about Pluto and the dwarf planets. Okay. Let's see what songs you picked. Cordoba te quiero tanto Soy Cordoba 
So right now we're listening to Isla Patrulla by Los Olimareños and before the break we were listening to Soy Cordobés by Rodrigo I have to admit that the first the song we were listening before the break did surprise me I, I, I don't know why but I wasn't expecting you to pick that song Why did you pick it? Well, I think it reflects uh, different times of my life Uh, the second one, uh, the one from Los Olimareños, Isla Patrulla, uh, reflects the the early times of my uh, well university studies and, and the time of uh, the end of the dictatorship here in Uruguay, where these kind of songs were not allowed, were forbidden, and in particular Los Olimareños comes from a, a region of, of my country, of Uruguay, Uh, the the province is uh, 33 where my mother and my grandmother comes from and uh, for me it was the introduction to the what we call the folklore uh, so it, it was a very important time of my life where i start to discover the the politics uh, uh, and in particular to fight against the, the dictatorship here in Uruguay. The second one, uh, I must admit that uh, Rodrigo makes me feel in different way and in different ways. Yes, because in some way I, I understand it's a very popular song and Rodrigo is an Argentinian. It was sorry, it was an Argentinian song uh, song uh, singer. And he was very popular, and and I like these people that were able. To, and he comes from a very poor family, so he from from nothing he was able to to build to create a an idol, and 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 I like that that it's it's funny because it's our like a it's a kind of a party song, and yeah. I mean that's that's what this po podcast is about showing that scientists have this other side. Besides the research, that I love that I, you're open this side to us. Thank you. So, Dr. Tancredi, what's up with Pluto? <laughs> I, I mentioned before that there is a region of the solar system that um, it's called the Trans-Neptunian region, the region of objects outside the orbit of Neptune. But this region of objects outside the orbit of Neptune was not well known until, let's say, 20, 30 years ago. Uh, in 1930, Pluto was discovered, and at that moment it was 
name it as a planet. In fact, it was a big uh, news at that moment, the discovery of Pluto. Uh, when I give talks about Pluto, I always say that uh, when I was doing my um, undergraduate studies, I, I made a thesis about the origin of Pluto and its satellite Charon, or Charon. And when I read the literature about Pluto, in Spanish, Pluto is Pluton. But when I read the literature, obviously, most of the literature is in English. And, well, the name was Pluto. And I, and when people, in particular in my country and, and, and also in the U.S., uh, when you mention Pluto, you think about the, the dog, the dog, the Walt Disney dog. And uh, one of the things that I, I, I was thinking when I was doing my PhD, sorry, my undergraduate studies, which was first, if the planet was first or if the dog was first. Then uh, after looking into some books uh, about the history of Walt Disney, I found out that, that the dog was named after the planet. And in that way, I can say that uh, the discovery of Pluto was a big news. All the newspaper at that moment was mentioning that a new planet was discovered. But then it turns out that Pluto has some particular characteristics. Characteristics: The orbit of Pluto is inclined respect to the orbit of the other planets. The object is quite small. And in the 80s, then uh, it was possible to have more information about Pluto. And there was some speculations that there should exist other objects similar to Pluto in the region outside Neptune orbit. In particular, my thesis advisor at that moment was Julio Fernandez. He had present uh, an article about the existence of a belt of objects outside the orbit of Neptune. In 1992, well, a new object was discovered around the, around the Sun in an orbit far away, in an orbit outside the orbit of Neptune. And since then, hundreds and even thousands of objects have been discovered, discovered in what we call the Trans-Neptunian Belt, also it's known, it's known as the Kuiper Belt. It turns out that in year 2003, an object was discovered by Mike Brown that uh, has a size similar to Pluto. So the question at that moment was, well, if Pluto is a planet, this object that has been discovered in 2003 with a size similar and even maybe larger than Pluto should be also named as a planet. But it might be that there is not only this object, but many other objects similar to that. Then the International Astronomical Union realized that the problem is that we don't have a definition of a planet. The word planet has been used for thousands of years since the epoch of the ancient Greeks, but it has not a scientific definition. So it was decided to have a definition of the word of the term planet and after that definition classify the objects in the solar system sorry to interrupt you but i have yeah. the definition here can i read it to you and you tell me so it has like three parts which part pluto does not yeah. fulfill 
This definition was adopted in 2006 in a General Assembly of the International Astronomical Union. A planet is a celestial body that has sufficient mass for its self-gravity to overcome rigid body forces so that it assumes a hydrostatic equilibrium, nearly round shape, and has not cleared the neighborhood around its orbit. So it, it seems like self-gravity is one, nearly round shape is another one, and then having cleared the neighborhood around its orbit, it's another condition in order to be considered a planet. One first that it's orbiting around the sun. We are talking about objects that are orbiting around the sun. The second condition is that the self-gravity, that is a, a, a force that acts in all the objects that has masses, makes the object round. Okay, And the third criteria is that it clears the vicinity of its orbit of other objects of similar sizes. Well, this is what nowadays eight planets that we have in the solar system has done. Let's take, for example, the case of the Earth or let's take the case of Jupiter. And all of them, all the eight planets, does not have in their vicinity, in their area of influence, any other object of a comparable size. So that's why, and in particular, these, the planets do not cross their orbits. Mm -hmm. Their orbits are separated in distance to the sun. So that's why Pluto cannot be considered a planet. Yeah. Pluto, in its neighborhood, in its area of influence, has another objects like the one that was discovered in 2003, but many others that has sizes similar to Pluto. So Pluto has not been able to clean its neighborhood. And this process of clearness or, or, or emptiness of, of the region, it's a consequence of the formation of the solar system. The planet forms, the planet forms by accretion, by low speed impacts of smaller objects. And these low speed impacts in contrast to the high speed impacts that we were talking about before, when, when two objects impact at lower speed, what it happens, they accrete, they add together. But in the case of Pluto and these objects, they survive in their region without being accreted into a planet. I see, I see. Dr. Tranquilli, can I tell you a, a short story that involves both of us, although I'm sure you don't remember this? <laughs> okay. So you are, you are a professor at my university, but I studied biology and you do astronomy. So I don't think you ever taught me a lesson directly. But when I was a high schooler, my high school organized a visit to the university and you were one of the professors that gave us a talk. And of course, people introduced you as the person that had kicked Pluto from the solar system as, as a joke, of course. And then you gave a great talk. And at the end of the talk, you said, do you guys have any questions? And a classmate of mine, she raised her hand and she said, Pluto was my favorite planet. <laughs> That's it. Well, she didn't yeah, ask a that, question. She just said that. that, that yeah, that, that happens not only in Uruguay, in particular in the U.S. It happens a lot. Uh, and, and in particular, I think that's why I mentioned this, the history about Pluto the dog. Because 
for us when we were kids. I mean, we all always love Pluto, yeah. the dog. Okay, so uh, in some way there is this kind of association in the public in general, the society about Pluto, the dog, and the planet. And well, I, I suppose that many people in in the world has dogs. Uh, has pets with the name Pluto. Yeah. So, uh, well, but science could not work with that kind of feelings. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but in the US, there were actually parades organized to protest. Yes. And, and the slogan was right. give Pluto a chance. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> there were parades in, uh, in Flagstaff in particular, where Pluto was discovered, but also in New York and, uh, and many other places where well, people were against this definition. So are you, if, if you go to those places, is your face behind a, a wanted sign? <laughs> well, in fact, I, I, I was in Flagstaff just a few months ago and I visited the Lowell Observatory where this uh, planet was discovered. And in particular, I visited the, the telescope that was used for, for discovery. And uh, I have a lot of friends there and... And although there has been discussion, I think nowadays the scientific community has uh, accepted this definition that we proposed in 2006 in the General Assembly of the IEU. Dr. Credit, you have a, an asteroid named after yourself. But I'm a little confused here. So it's asteroid 5088 or 5088, Tancredi, mm -hmm. that's the name. But... It was discovered in 1979, and if my math is correct, you were about 16 years old when it was discovered. So how come it's named after you? Well, um, then you have to understand the rules of naming asteroids. Asteroids are not named by are not named for the discoverer. The, the names of the asteroids are proposed by the discoverer, but it has he cannot or she cannot propose his own name. So in the case of this asteroid, was discovered by a colleague from the Uppsala University, one of my professors at the Uppsala University, when I got my PhD there, during, uh, at the moment of getting my PhD, he uh, proposed the name of one of the asteroids that he has discovered by with my name. And then afterwards, I uh, also well, discovered other asteroids and I also proposed names for these, those asteroids. Yeah, actually, you, you have described at least three that I know of. So one is 6252, that it's named Montevideo, which is the yeah. capital city of Uruguay. That's, I guess that's why you picked that name, right? Yeah, it was... Uh, in 1995, we have we organized a meeting in in Montevideo, the regional meeting of the Astronomical Union, and well, at that moment we proposed the name of Mont of, of Montevideo for an asteroid. Then there is 68853 that is named Vaimaca, and then 73342, which is named Gushunusa. Those asteroids were the first asteroids discovered here in Uruguay. I mean, the other asteroids were discovered in. in in, um, in Chile, and uh, those asteroids were discovered from the Observatorio Los Molinos. It's an observatory that is in the north part of Uruguay, 
And, uh, well, we propose those names that are names of Indian people here in Uruguay, or native peoples in, in Uruguay, from the Charua community. It's just a way to re reivindicate the na native people? Yeah, that's that's right. Uh, we Well, those people by Maka and Gushunusa are known as the last Charuas because they were sent to France in something like a circus and they were shown around France uh, we are talking about mid-century 19 and they were sent to, to France and they died in France while they were being shown as some kind of freak with <laughs> freaky yeah, persons and yeah, yeah no, very very sad situation so dr tongredi what happened with the comet the comet of the century there's a story yeah. there right yeah there is an <laughs> well, i wouldn't say it a nice story but <laughs> a difficult story for me and when i was in Uppsala during my phd one of the work that i have done is to do a survey of asteroids and comets. And this survey was motivated by a theoretical work that we have done before, that we have found that if you are looking for comets in the solar system, the region where there should be more comets at that single time per area, it's the region around Jupiter, uh, the vicinity of Jupiter. So we proposed to do a search for comets in the vicinity of Jupiter. And we organized this search using telescope from, from Chile, but also we present the results of this uh, theoretical survey at some conference. In particular, it was also at a conference in Flagstaff in 1991, uh, the conference called Asteroid Comets and Meteor. And at that conference, uh, I proposed the idea to look for comets in the vicinity of Jupiter. And the, the first person to raise his hand to ask me a question was a famous astronomer at that time, Gene Shoemaker. And he said that, okay, well, that's a great idea. We have been looking for comets and asteroids in, for many years, we, but we have, we have never pointed the telescope in the direction of Jupiter because we think that we should, we should have not been able to discover anything. Two years after that, we were doing our survey from Chile, but at the same time, Ginger Maker and Levy, David Levy, were doing a similar search from one telescope in the U.S. And, well, they discovered what is called the comet Jumeker-Levy 9. It was the ninth, ninth comet discovered by this team. And uh, although we have been able to observe the comet, we didn't, uh, my colleague that was at the moment in Chile, uh, it's a, a Swedish colleague, he, he didn't realize that it was uh, a comet. And well, Jumeker and Levy reported it before. The, the interesting thing is that this comet was captured around Jupiter for some time, was revolving around Jupiter like a satellite, and the year after, that means 1994, impact into Jupiter, but before impacting, it was split in more than 20 fragments different. So it was like a chain of objects, like a train of objects impacting Jupiter uh, for many weeks for many days. Each of the impacts in Jupiter produce a cloud of material 
and some of these clouds of material was even larger than the size of the Earth. So which it was a huge impact into Jupiter. And this impact into Jupiter rea- make us think that, uh, when I say may, um, us in terms of the uh, scientific community, that this kind of impact could have catastrophic consequences to any planet. I mean, in this case, to Jupiter, but if such an impact could occur in the Earth, it would be a, a very catastrophic event. So I think it's called the, the comet of the century because it was such a huge impact into Jupiter that also changed our minds about the importance of impacts of objects into a planet. So you and saw you saw it and you didn't report it. Yeah, that 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 is the problem. I <laughs> not not me, but our team uh, have images of the object at the same time as the one from by Schumacher and Levy, but we have been we haven't been so quick to to report it, but with a nice situation that we were able to predict that this could occur. I mean, to predict that objects, comets could be around Jupiter. It's a bittersweet feeling because it's, okay, I, at least I was right in theory, but they scooped me the result, you know, I, I could have done it, yeah. Yeah, th- this comet could, could have our names. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, we mentioned it, Lindgren Tancredi. Lindgren was my colleague from Sweden. That uh, in, instead of being named Jumeikele Binari, it could have our names. Yeah. <laughs> That's Dr. life. <laughs> Dr. Tancredi, let's do our last break, and then I'll be back with some more, maybe more general questions, more like asking for your opinion on, on some stuff, okay? Okay. about Armageddon now we're listening to I Don't Wanna Miss a Thing by Aerosmith Why did you pick this song Dr. Tancredi? 
Well, since we were planning to talk about Armageddon, I think it was a, 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 a it was a good uh, choice. Although, as I said before, Armageddon, if you analyze it from scientific purpose, perspective, it has a lot of things to to be criticized. And the other song was uh, from a kind of music that is very popular here in Uruguay. It's called Murga. Uh, Murga, it's uh, uh, a popular expression in Uruguay, a popular... Uh, it's a group of people, maybe 15, 20 people, that, uh, well, produce a, a show that is usually presented during the carnival, in, in our case, during the summer, uh, in January and February. And uh, in this case, it's a, so it's a group called Agarrate Catalina. And... Uh, well, you, you have heard it's a very strong song. It's a very rude song because it's talking about violence. Yeah, the name of the violence song is that we have, La Violencia, that it translates violence. Yeah. Violence that we have in our societies. And when I mention our society, I'm talking about most of the countries in South America and Latin America, where you have strong difference between the poor people and the rich people. And, and this... Uh, difference makes uh, uh, well that uh, poor people sometimes are feel uh, feel that they are outside the society and but in some ways they the rich people need it because they need uh, cheap uh, uh, labors so it, it, it this song talks about this problem of violence in in our countries Dr. Tancredi, what happened in September 15th, 2007 in Carancas, Peru? We can start talking about what happened to the people there. Carancas, it's very close to the border between Peru and Bolivia in the Altiplano region, very close also to, also to the Titicaca Lake. The people there are mostly Indians from the Inca people and the, uh, another community, the Aymara people to Indian communities of those region. And in the middle of the day, they observe, they observe a bright object crossing the sky. And after that, uh, in a rural area, a crater was formed. I mean, uh, an object impacted the earth, released a lot of meteorites that, are, were, that were spread around the crater, and they produced uh, 15 15 meter crater and some people witnessed the formation of the crater well this was immediately a news all around the world and in particular for those interested as me in impacts it was a very interesting uh, phenomena that to, to study i was in contact uh, with some colleagues in peru unfortunately in peru there are not too many astronomers and none of them were uh, interested or experts in the, in the topic of impacts. So I had the chance to go there just even a few weeks after the impact and we were able to visit the, the, the area and we recognized that it was clearly an impact event and there was a lot of meteorites that were recovered from there. We interviewed people and for example, we found 
one person that was riding a bike and due to the uh, shock produced by the impact, he fall down on the bike. There was also, for example, a bull with a horn broken and the horn was broken because the full, sorry, the bull falls down also due to the shock produced. There was a small house that was impacted by by some pieces of material that were blown away at the, at the impact. And well, as I say, said before, I mean, it was a very interesting case because uh, it was the first time that an impact was witnessed by people. Also, it was the first time that we were able to analyze the seismic wave produced by the impact because since it's a very, uh, it's a region with a lot of earthquake in that area, there were, there were a dense network of seismometers. So we have the record of the impact uh, of, of the wave produced uh, by, by the impact, the seismic wave produced by the impact. But also there was a lot of concern about, about from the people there. I mean, the people did not understand what has happened. Uh, as I said before, it's, it's a very poor area. Uh, a lot of people are not even uh, have been able to go to the school. Um, uh, and there were a lot of anecdotes about, for example, in my first visit to, to that place, the people didn't know exactly what had happened. So they asked me to give a talk. It was a talk in a, in a rural school in the middle of nowhere, let's say. And there was there were little worries of communicating uh, between the people. So in order to make the announcement that something will happen in, in the school, uh, what they make is fire and they produce a smoke smoke signal. So it was the first time and the unique time in my life that a, a talk given to the public was <laughs> announced by, by smoke, smoke signals. That's yeah, so funny. Yeah. So, uh, and well, and, and a lot of people, I mean, I think something like an order of 100 people come to my talk because <laughs> they saw the signal and then... And there were a lot of small children and local people and I have very nice picture from that. And we came back a few weeks after with some colleagues from the U.S. in order to analyze. And we conclude that, well, it was a hypervelocity impact that occurred in, in that area. And another story about that is that this area, it's, as I said before, it's in the border between Peru, Bolivia and very close to Chile. It's a area that has long time conflicts because well, Chile has uh, wars against Bolivia and Peru. And some people thought that it could be a ma missile sent by the Chilean government to Bolivia or Peru. So there were some kind of concerns about that. Obviously, it didn't start a, a war, <laughs> but it, it, it could be close to that. Of all the reasons to start a war, that would be one of the, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that's, something that it, that's something that one has to be aware. Yeah. And in particular, the, the, the U.S. is aware of that. And for example, there are a lot of military satellites that are observing the Earth. And in particular, they are observing the Earth in order to detect any kind of explosions, large-scale explosions. 
And one of the reasons for this large scale, uh, scale explosion is the entry of some interplanetary object. So they have to distinguish from what it could be uh, an explosion due to a bomb or an explosion due to uh, that kind of things. And, well, uh, and this information for us is very relevant to understand the frequency of impacts into the Earth. How big was the object that impacted near Lake Titicaca? Yeah, it's a little bigger than one meter. It's, wow. it's not a very large object. It's a little bigger than one meter. But, but still, uh, it, it was, was not able... possible to recover the original object. The, the object was completely destroyed and only some fragments of the meteor were recovered in the area. But still, it was able to make a 15-meter hole. Yeah, that's, that's right. It's crazy, yeah. I have to ask you, that's really, and I'm sorry I'm asking questions that I know are outside of your field, but do you think there is life out there? What we know is that analyzing the information and, uh, and, and the theories that we have about the origin of life on Earth, we think that the conditions that happen when life was forming in our planet could be repeated could be similar to the conditions of other planets in the universe. Maybe not in our solar system, but maybe planets around stars in our galaxy. It's what we call the habitable zone of a planetary system. So this condition could be repeated and the process of forming life could have happened in other places of the universe. We don't have detected yet. We don't have been in contact with other intelligent forms of life. But we think that this process may be not unique and it could happen in other places. And in the near future, maybe less than a decade, we will be able to analyze the atmospheres of some planets around other stars and to detect if life could be present. Which way? Well, the atmospheres of the Earth, it's an atmosphere outside the equilibrium. It's an atmosphere that has been changed due to the presence of life. If something similar could happen in other places, in other planets, we can detect atmospheres outside the equilibrium. And the explanation for that could be the presence of life. Mm -hmm. So you say that in the next decade, we might know? We have now the technology to do that. We have discovered many southern planets around other stars. And we are building telescopes that are capable to do, analyze the atmospheres of many planets. So maybe in well, 10, 15, 20 years, we could say that we have observed, for example, several thousand atmospheres. I mean, we have observed, we have analyzed several thousand atmospheres of planets. And, well, maybe in a few of them, we have detected uh, an atmosphere outside the equilibrium, or maybe we have not. So in, that, in the first case, we could say that we can detect life. In the other case, maybe we can say that Life does not exist, but it has a very, very low probability. I see. I see. 
Dr. Tancredi, would you like to go to outer space yourself? Mm, not too much. I mean, uh, <laughs> I don't feel too good when I have to travel in planes, I mean, in flights. Uh, I don't like accelerations or these accelerations. So, and, and I know that in order to escape the gravitational force of, of the Earth, you need to have a very strong acceleration and I don't feel that. <laughs> I don't like that. Dr. Tangredi, I always ask scientists about the things they like to do outside of science. Would you mind sharing with us what are your hobbies? Well, um, I, I like to see sport. In particular, I like basketball. Uh, I'm, uh, I, I think that basketball is a very nice sport with with a lot of change during, during a match so I, I, I like to but also I also watch football and rugby and <laughs> many other uh, sports and and, and it's, maybe it's not a hobby but I, I'm usually involved in, in more in politics or, or policy well as you mentioned at the beginning I'm, I'm the president of the Uh, National Association of Researchers in Uruguay, so I have to spend a lot of time with that kind of more, let's say, political duties than only doing research or teaching. When you when you watch basketball, do you watch Uruguayan basketball, or do you, do you have a team that you support in the NBA? I don't have a team that support in the NBA. In NBA, I, although I, I try to see some matches of the NBA. Uh, But uh, no, uh, no, no, I, I don't have any specific team in the NBA. I, I, I have some one team here in, in our country. That's incredible. Thank you so much for, for being part of Science Stories. Did you have a good time? Yes, of course. <laughs> yeah. Thank you to the listeners for listening to another episode of Science Stories. Wow. Wow. Thank you.